Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 14, 2022. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. The top story on the front page today is entitled Charles City School Board Tables Staffing Adjustments After a Community Turns Out. The article is by Abby Koch of the Globe Gazette. After more than 50 speakers, ranging from a 7th grader to a minister, decried proposed staffing cuts for more than two hours Monday night, the Charles City School Board tabled the item until January 23. That didn't stop nearly 30 high school students from walking out of classes Tuesday morning in protest. Close to 100 people filled the high school library to capacity on Monday. The agenda contained three proposed staff reduction plans. The board also asked to approve one of the plans for a projected savings of $758,470. Lower enrollment necessitates the reductions, Superintendent Ann Lundquist said. Charles City residents and students received word of the proposed cuts on Thursday with all options, including the music department, and some proposed cuts to Project RISE, a program that serves high school and middle school students considered at risk. It takes an extensive amount of dedication and effort from our music staff to provide us with the opportunities. With the changes that have been proposed, staff will be stretched too thin and opportunities will be lost, sophomore Katie Heckers said. Added senior Anders Hogland, I understand that if not the music department, that another position must vanish. Yet it seems counterintuitive to cut the department which is currently thriving. I pray you understand the position we are in and disappointment that we have. Lundquist sent an email Friday to all district employees detailing the proposed cuts that was later posted on Facebook. The options are included reduce two music teachers, reduce one music teacher and one English teacher at Charles City High School, reduce one music teacher and the assistant principal at the high school. Lundquist said she wished the reductions were not necessary, but with the drop in enrollment, they are. Charles City's certified enrollment taken in early October showed the district was down 64 students. An audit of last year's report found the district had 18 fewer students than previously reported for 2021-22, taking the total down 18 more students. Scott Jensen has children who attended Charles City Schools. Scott Jensen has children who attended Charles City Schools. He was one of the first to arrive at the meeting and the first one to speak during public comments. He asked the board to, quote, truly listen, close quote, to the crowd and table the item. I want you to truly take the time to hear each of those words and look at the passion that they're saying it with. They're going to give you their messages, their personal stories. A lot of the Project Rise kids have some personal stories to share, said Jensen, your decisions are impacting their very lives and the lives of the generations to come that are going through these programs. Many of those who looked to the microphone, who took to the microphone, were students. 
Music students talked about how a teacher has shaped their lives, helping them find the friendships and support they needed to thrive. I've been positively impacted by these teachers, and I couldn't imagine younger grades and future events not having the same experience. Again, it is not the existence of a class, it is a teacher, said senior Sophia Jensen. Project RISE students who wore neon green shirts to the meeting described how their two advisors have helped them to succeed in school. They are home and they are family, said junior Mackenzie Zweilbomer. Joining this team has taught me many things about my mental journey and maximizes my success. Mrs. Carlene Sickman and Mr. Dan Caffrey's tough love and guidance has shaped me into the person that I am today, which is a much stronger and reliable version, said sophomore Claire Kirby. <clears throat> Several at the meeting asked the board to look at the other options. Former school board director Missy Freund presented a fourth plan, and several other community members spoke in favor of it during their three minutes. If we cut the director of academic services, a position that our district clearly can't afford to add yet, cut our high school assistant principal, and if our superintendent agrees to a voluntary pay cut for one year, that equals the total savings around $240,000, said Freund. That is enough money to save both of our music positions the English teacher position, and the at-risk coordinator. Lundquist has a salary of $170,000 and benefits. Jennifer Schilling, curriculum director for the district, a new position for Charles City, has a salary of $100,226. We know that we are facing budget cuts. We understand that these are not easy decisions to make but I would urge you to consider an option that minimizes our senior leadership, currently sitting at 12 people for this district, and keep teachers where they need to be, said Freund. Jenna Hagland, a parent and a district social worker, highlighted the community events Charles City students have been a part of in the past few weeks. We are ready to fight. I'm not just fighting for music. I'm fighting for the kids who are at risk and who are in music. They deserve a chance as much as my children do. I love our children, said Hagland. District employee and parent Mariah Ray spoke about how her children have grown passionate about music because of their teachers. She highlighted how vocal music teacher Derek Sturdivant had been developing her son's vocal skills despite not being his student. After her statement, Ray handed in her letter of resignation and said she was quitting her job effective immediately. They tried wrestling, and, and even at that, they prefer the music department. To make cuts in the music department and not sports, that's not equal in my eyes, said Ray. The Reverend Tom Barnard, pastor at Trinity United Methodist Church, told the board about a recent student performance at his church and how it was the best he has witnessed. He pointed out how the cuts would impact the district in a two-year span, ranging from teacher workloads to a drop in participation. Psychologically, emotionally, and educationally, it is critical to provide an outlet for fine arts, just like how you provide a terrific outlet with sports, said Bernard. Charles City Mayor Dean Andrews also made an appearance. 
I think you can tell from the passion that was expressed here tonight. I hope that you consider not voting on this tonight and and continue to hear comment before you make a decision, said Andrews. Lundquist said the reduction options were determined after meeting with the district's leadership team. We wanted to make sure we were very, very careful not to take any programs away from students. So following this, what I'm calling an executive I'm what I'm calling an exhaustive review, we made apparent some of our decisions that we would be recommending to the board, said Lundquist. Lundquist said she doesn't take the staffing situation lightly. She mentioned hurtful comments she has received because of the proposed cuts. After a long discussion, school board director David Schroet made a motion to table the item. Lundquist said from now until January 23, She will talk with the board about additional options. We brought what we believe are the three most plausible, but there are certainly others. There are always other areas that we can improve, said Lundquist. Students said after the meeting they were happy the item was tabled, but still felt frustrated. I'm very disappointed in our school board, especially our superintendent, said Banks. She was talking that people were mocking her. I don't think that was the case. I think it was that she wasn't listening to us. The other top story on the front page is entitled State Court Rejects Reynolds' Fight to Reinstate Abortion Limit. The article is by Aaron Murphy from the Globe Gazette Des Moines Bureau. A fight over enacting a ban on abortions in Iowa once a fetus heartbeat can be detected is on its way to the Iowa Supreme Court. A district court judge on Monday rejected Governor Kim Reynolds' request to reinstate a blocked law that would ban abortions once a fetus heartbeat can be detected. Reynolds immediately announced her intention to appeal to the Iowa Supreme Court. For the time being, abortion in Iowa remains legal until 20 weeks after uh, until 20 weeks of pregnant, uh, pregnancy. After a U.S. Supreme Court ruling earlier this year essentially ended a pregnant person's right to an abortion at the federal level and sent the issue of abortion regulations to the states, Reynolds asked the state courts to reinstate the 2018 so-called fetal heartbeat law, which at the time was ruled unconstitutional. On Monday, District Court Judge Celine Gogarty ruled the district court does not have the authority to dissolve the permanent injunction that was placed on the law. It has not been established that the court has any authority, inherent or based on the rules of civil procedure, which allows it to retain jurisdiction in order to dissolve the permanent injunction in this case, Gogarty's decision reads. Gogarty went on to write, additionally, Even if the court had jurisdiction to dissolve the permanent injunction, the state has failed to show that there has been a substantial change in the law under the Iowa Constitution that would change the circumstances. Shortly after the ruling was published, Reynolds' office announced an appeal. I'm very disappointed in the ruling filed today by the district court, but regardless of the outcome, this case was always going to the Iowa Supreme Court. Reynolds said in a statement, as the Iowa and U.S. Supreme Courts have made clear, there is no fundamental right to an abortion. 
the decision of the people's representatives to protect life should be honored, and I believe the court will ultimately do so. Supporters of the fetal heartbeat laws say they ban abortions at roughly six weeks of pregnancy. However, medical experts, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, say a fetus heartbeat cannot be detected until closer to 20 weeks of pregnancy, and that what an ultrasound detects at six weeks is not a heartbeat, but electrical impulses. There are 13 states with laws that ban abortions at either six weeks or fewer, according to the Guttmacher Institute, a national nonprofit organization that monitors states' abortion laws and advocates for access to reproductive health care. The Iowa Supreme Court is entirely comprised of Republican appointees, and six of the seven justices were appointed by Reynolds. In July, shortly before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the Roe v. Wade abortion decision, the Iowa Supreme Court overturned its own ruling on abortion, concluding that a court made up of less conservative justices wrongly decided abortion is among the fundamentally concluding that a court made up of less conservative justices wrongly decided abortion is among the fundamental privacy rights guaranteed by the Iowa Constitution. In other news, Matthew Rezab of the Globe Gazette reports county officials sworn in. Five of six Cerro Gordo officials elected in November were sworn into office on Tuesday morning before the Board of Supervisors meeting. County Attorney Carlisle Dolan, Recorder Anne-Marie Legler, Supervisors Chris Watts and Casey Callanan, along with new Treasurer Nikki Fessler, all took the oath of office. New Supervisor Lori Meacham Gnapp was unable to attend the ceremony. Fessler, Legler, Dolan, and Callanan will each serve four-year terms, while Watts and Meacham, Gnapp, will serve two-year terms due to redistricting last February. The group will officially take office in early January. Gnapp and Watts survived close races and the recount of ballots last month in those races. Fessler will take over the treasurer's office from longtime treasurer Pat Wright, who will retire next month. She was given a plaque honoring her more than 45 years of service in various roles to the county at the end of the supervisors' meeting on Tuesday. In local briefs, it is reported that a Mason City man who attempted to steal an Xbox video game console and assaulted the owner pleaded guilty to first-degree theft in Cerro Gordo County District Court on Monday. According to the court records, 28-year-old Derek Jeriah Raphael is facing up to 10 years in prison for the Class C felony. The plea deal recommends 10 years in prison and a suspended $1,370 fine. Raphael was originally charged with second-degree robbery, which also is a Class C felony, but the charge was later amended. Both crimes carry the same maximum punishment. The charges stem from an incident that took place at a residence in the 600 block of North Pennsylvania Avenue in Mason City around 8.19 p.m. on September 30. The affidavit states Raphael claimed 
he was at the residence to purchase the Xbox, but the alleged victim didn't feel safe and asked Raphael to leave. The man reported to police Raphael told him he needed to calm down because before I just take it. Raphael then allegedly proceeded to try to leave with the Xbox and struck the victim in the face, splitting his lip open. According to a press release issued by the Mason City Police Department, the man called police and reported he was, ab he was able to get away from Raphael with the aid of a knife. The caller refused medical attention. Raphael was later taken to Mercy One North, Iowa Medical Iowa Medical Center in Mason City and treated for minor injuries. A sentencing hearing is scheduled for January 23. The presiding judge is not bound by the plea deal recommendation. Also, a Missouri man is, has a, gets a suspended sentence for a weapons charges. A Missouri man with a history of domestic abuse was given a suspended prison sentence Tuesday after pleading guilty to weapons charges in September. According to court records, 31-year-old Tyler John Staley was convicted of possession of a firearm by a domestic abuser and reckless use of a firearm. He received five years and two years of probation to be served consecutively. Staley faced up to seven years in prison. The charges stem from an incident in Missouri last March in which Staley was in possession of a 22 silver Taurus handgun. He displayed the weapon to two witnesses who informed law enforcement of the weapon. Staley then recklessly shot around in the ceiling of the residence at 818 First Street in Missouri just after 4 a.m. A second firearm described as a pink Savage 22 long rifle also was seized from Staley's residence. Staley was convicted on domestic abuse charges in 2011 and 2013. In an article of National News by Frida Frisaro of the Associated Press, the article is entitled, Florida's DeSantis Seeks Grand Jury Investigation of COVID-19 Vaccinations. The article is bylined in Miami. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said Tuesday that he plans to petition the state's Supreme Court to convene a grand jury to investigate, quote, any and all wrongdoing, close quote, with respect to COVID-19 vaccines. The Republican governor, who is often mentioned as a possible presidential candidate in 2024, gave no specifics on what wrongdoing the panel would investigate, but suggested it would be in part aimed to jog loose more information from pharmaceutical companies about the vaccines and potential side effects. He made the announcement following a roundtable with Florida Surgeon General Joseph Lopato, Ladapo and a panel of scientists and physicians. We'll be able to get the data whether they want to give it or not, DeSantis said. In, Flor in Florida, it is illegal to mislead and misrepresent especially when you are talking about the efficacy of a drug. Vaccine studies funded by pharmaceutical companies that developed COVID-19 vaccines have been published in peer-reviewed journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, and government panels reviewed data on the safety and effectiveness of the shots before approving them for use. 
Statewide grand juries, usually composed of 18 people, can investigate criminal activity and issue indictments, but also examine, examine systemic problems in Florida and make recommendations. Such plan panels recently tackled immigration issues and school safety. DeSantis noted that Florida recently got a $3.2 billion recently got $3.2 billion through legal action against those responsible for the opioid crisis. So it's not like this is something that's unprecedented, quoted DeSantis. That money came largely through lawsuits that led to settlements for drug makers, retailers, and distributors. DeSantis said he expects to get approval from the Supreme Court for the statewide grand jury to be impaneled likely in the Tampa Bay area. That will come with legal processes that will, that will be able to get more information and to bring legal accountability to those who committed misconduct, he said. DeSantis also announced he is creating an entity called the Public Health Integrity Committee, which will include many of the physicians and scientists who participated in the Roundtable Tuesday. The group includes prominent opponents of lockdowns, federal vaccine mandates, and child vaccinations. DeSantis said that over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, some people have lost faith in public health institutions, including the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The governor frequently has spoken out against CDC directives, including mask and vaccine mandates, and filed lawsuits to stop many from taking effect in Florida. Additionally, the governor announced that LADAPO will conduct research through the University of Florida to assess sudden deaths of individuals in good health who received a COVID-19 vaccine. In addition, he said, the Florida Department of Health will utilize disease surveillance and vital statistics to assess such deaths. You are listening to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 14, 2022 on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. From Osage, Betty J. Wipert, 89, passed away Monday, December 12, 2022 at the Stacyville Community Nursing Home. A celebration of Betty's life will be held Friday afternoon, December 16, 2022, at the American Legion, 504 Main Street, Osage, from 3 p.m. until 6 p.m., Sheckler Colonial Chapel, 114 North Hawkeye Avenue, Nora Springs. From Manley, Robert Bob Frank Flieger, 92, of Manley, passed away peacefully on December 11, 2022 at Manley Specialty Care Center. A funeral service will be held 10.30 a.m. Friday, December 16, 2022, at Bethlehem Lutheran Church, 428 West Walnut Street in Manley, Iowa, with Pastor Linda Johnson Prestholt officiating. Burial will be held in Oakwood Cemetery in Plymouth, Iowa. Visitation will be held from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Thursday, December 15, 2022, at Bride Colonial Chapel, 110 East Spring Street, Manly, Iowa. Bob was born on February 27, 1930, on a farm east of St. Ansgar. 
The family then moved to Riceville, where he attended school. On September 14, 1951, he married the love of his life, Doris Anderson, in Big Fork, Minnesota. From this loving union, four daughters were born. Bob and Doris moved to Plymouth, Iowa, where he worked for the elevator for 35 years. He served the community for many years as an active member of the Plymouth Fire Department and the City Council. His favorite pastime was spending time with his family and fishing with his son-in-laws, affectionately known as David and the Jim Bobs. With four daughters and three chatty sons-in-law, Bob was a quiet man, more out of circumstance than by choice. Bob cherished every moment of being father and grandfather. He was so proud of the family he and Doris began. It was said that Bob had a kind of gentle soul, and he was one to not raise his temper. Bob was also a longtime member of the Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Manly, Iowa. Those left to cherish memories of Bob are his wife of 71 years, Doris, his children, Sandy, husband Jim Rezab, John or Donna, husband Jim Garnis, Cindy, husband David Dahl, and Lori Flieger, grandchildren Amy, Rob Warnicky, Amy, husband Rob Warnicky, Wendy, husband Matt Purdy, Kyle Holloway, Melissa, husband Chris Landcamp, Catherine, husband Aaron Rush, and Ryan, wife Nikki Dahl. Great-grandchildren, great Timothy Warnicky, Austin Warnicky, Marin Purdy, Anderson Purdy, Ellery Rush, and Wesley Dahl. Special friends, special family friends, Jan Munson and Travis Munson Serling and their family, as well as countless other relatives and friends. Bob is preceded in death by his parents, his brother Roger, and his sister Rosa Warburton. The family would like to give a special thank you to Pastor Linda Johnson Prestholt, the staff of Manly Specialty Care Center, and the nurses of St. Croix Hospice for all their care and support throughout this challenging time. In addition, the following glo Globe death notices are published. Tony Hyungs, 61, of Nevada, died Tuesday, December 13, 22, at the Israel Hospice in, in Ames. Arrangements, Andrews Funeral Homes, Belmond. Lois Lehman, 81, of Clear Lake, died Tuesday, December 13, 2022, at the Mercy One North Iowa Hospice Inpatient Unit in Mason City. Arrangements, Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel. Richard Leroy Miller, 68, of Hampton, died Friday, December 9, 2022, at home. Arrangements, Council Woodley Funeral Home. Pat Patricia Nelson, 81, of Charles City, died Friday, December 9, 2022, at the Floyd County Medical Center, Charles City. Arrangements, Hauser Weissar Funeral Home, Charles City. And Gom Thilo, 89, of Mason City, died Friday, December 9, 2022, at Mercy One North Iowa Hospital. Arrangements, Fullerton Funeral Home, Mason City. On to sports and an article regarding college men's basketball. UNI is undeterred by its recent skid. An article by Ethan Petrick. 
From Cedar Falls, South Florida shocked Northern Iowa Monday at the McLeod Center as the Bulls fended off a second Panthers comeback and won a buzzer-beating 40-foot heave. Redshirt sophomore forward Cole Henry described himself as still unsure of how to react as he responded to questions from reporters following the Panthers' third consecutive loss. As shocked as he claimed to be, his expression and demeanor told a different story. Brows furrowed, eyes determined, the Oskaloosa product radiated the resoluteness of the skidding Panthers. His comments soon followed suit. We have had a few rough games lately, Henry said. We have had every opportunity to shut it down and just get down on ourselves. Our team showed a lot of grit, and I think it showed a lot of heart. We persevered through a lot of stuff tonight. That shot really tears you up, because I think we deserve to win that one. Citing the game-tying layup from a sophomore guard, Bowen Bourne, and a clutch three-pointer from freshman guard Trey Campbell with 20 seconds left, Henry explained what made him so confident despite their 3-7 and record. Trey is a freshman, Henry said. That is a huge shot. Are you kidding me? Knowing that he is able to make that shot now gives me total confidence he is going to make it in a bigger game against Drake later in the year or against Belmont. Henry continued and described how back-to-back close losses coming down to the final postseason, final possession of regulation can have a positive impact on the young Panthers. A veteran compared to his teammates, the fourth-year player knows what lies ahead for you and I. At the end, I was on the court with two minutes left, Henry said. I was thinking to myself, these are championship-type minutes. People talk about close games coming down to the wire like this, This happens in March, that happens in February, and that happens in conference play. That is coming. Henry said the Panthers' confident attitude extended from head coach Ben Jacobson on down to the team, a fact that Jacobson did not hide during his own press conference following Monday's loss. When you are in a stretch like we are right now, where you have had a couple of home games, a couple of opportunities, you do not take advantage of them, you just like to see the guys have some success, Jacobson said. Now our job is to, because we are doing a lot of good things in stretches, you just keep going back to work. Jacobson continued and said, in spite of recent outcomes and the stretches in which the Panthers do not play to their potential, we found the play of this team encouraging. We are playing well enough in long enough stretches that we are in position to win, Jacobson said. I really like that about this team, that we have been positioned to win. For the most part, every night we have played. There is a ton to like about this group of of these guys. According to Henry, the 17-year head coach told his team following the game that the path forward lies in putting the Bulls' Steph Curry shot behind them and focusing on the strides they made in the game. Jacobson added, he knows the Panthers are, quote, going to get it right, close quote, but it will take time for them to put it all together on the court. I feel like the people that are coming to our games and keep coming to them see the same things that we see as a staff, Jacobson said. 
I think they really like these guys too. There are a lot of reasons to like them. I really appreciate the people that are coming because they are the ones that are going to enjoy it the most when we start playing good basketball. The Panthers wrap up their non-conference schedule against 8-3 Towson and 6-4 St. Bonaventure. Both the Tigers and Bonnies qualified for the 2022 National Invitation Tournament. Towson lost out in the first round while St. Bonaventure lost in the semifinals to eventual champion Xavier. Henry concluded his post-game comments with a promise to UNI fans, saying the Panthers are going to bring the same level of grit, confidence, and heart against Towson and for the remainder of the season. If we can keep playing like this, I think we're going to surprise a lot of people, Henry said, and shut a lot of people up as well. An article relating to college football indicates Campbell consensus pick. Iowa linebacker gets another first-team All-America nod, this one from the Associated Press. Iowa's Jack Campbell became a consensus All-American on Monday when the Hawkeye linebacker joined Iowa State receiver Xavier Hutchison in earning first-team All-American honors from the Associated Press. The three were among 27 players named to the first team by the AP. Campbell, previously named a first-team choice by the Walter Camp Foundation and the Football Writers Association of America, became the 29th Hawkeye to earn consensus All-America status by being listed on at least three of the five teams used to determine consensus recognition. The remaining two All-America teams, the Sporting News and the American Football Coaches Association, will announce their postseason teams on Tuesday and Wednesday, respectively. Selected earlier as the winner of the Butkus Award as the nation's top linebacker and the William V. Campbell Trophy as college football's top student-athlete, Campbell was also named as the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year and Linebacker of the Year after leading the Hawkeyes with 118 tackles. The senior from Cedar Falls also intercepted two passes, recovered one fumble, and forced another. His selection gives Iowa a consensus All-American for the fourth straight year, a first for the Hawkeye program. Campbell follows the selection of Keith Duncan in 2019, Davion Nixon in 2020, and Tyler Lindebaum is 2021. Hutchinson enjoyed a record-setting senior season with the Cyclones, breaking a school single-season record with 107 receptions. Politnikoff Award finalist led the country with an average of 8.9 catches per game, while ranking in the top 10 nationally with 1,171 receiving yards and an average of 97.6 receiving yards per game. Hutchison also broke a multitude of career records for ISU, including 254 receptions in his three seasons. That total is the most ever by a three-year player in Big 12 history. Two Hawkeyes, defensive back Kayvon Merriweather and punter Tory Taylor, earned second-team All-American honors from the AP. In Monday's high school roundup, the headline is number 10 Lake Mills moves to 5-0. Lake Mills outscored Central Springs 26-4 and 
in the third quarter as the Bulldogs pulled away for a 73-29 win over the Panthers Monday. Denton Kingland had 21 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists to lead the 10th-ranked Bulldogs 5-0. Three other Lake Mills players scored in double figures. Aiden Stensrud, 18, Eli Menke, 11, and Lance Helming, 10. Freshman Braden Crum led Central Springs with 5 points. In another game, Algona scored 80 against Foreign City, 35. Carson Struckel had 10 points and 7 rebounds for the Indians, who could not maintain pace with the Bulldogs. Forest City, 0-3, trailed just 39-24 at half, but Algona outscored it 28-4 in the third quarter to put the game away. North Union, 74, Northwood Kensett, 39. The Vikings got off to a slow start as it was held to 11 first-half points Monday by the Warriors. Cooper Juleseth had 13 points, while Lamont Sims had 10 points for Northwood Kensett. Kensett. Nashua Plainfield, 66, St. Edgar's, 61. The Huskies' Bo Harrington scored 33 points on 12 of 18 shooting as N.P. North Nashua Plainfield held off the Saints. Hunter William, Hunter Hillman, had 18 points and 7 boards for St. Ansgar, while Carson, Carson Sparrow had 17 points, 5 boards, and 5 assists. Tucker Franzen scored 13 points off the bench for Nashua Plainfield, and Devin Johnson added 10. In girls' play, St. Ansgar scored 41 against Nashua Plainfield, 19. The Saints, 4-2, and two, posted a third-quarter shutout, as they dominated the Huskies on Monday. Leading 20-10 to 10 at halftime, St. Ansgar outscored Nashua Plainfield 7-0 in the third. Madison Hillman had 15 points, 22 rebounds, 5 steals, and 3 block shots to lead the Saints. Central Springs defeated Lake Mills 47-33. The Panthers improved to 3-2 with the win. With the win. Central Springs built a 22-12 halftime lead and then maintained the big advantage throughout the second half. Lake Mills, 2-4, was led by Taylor Vanek's 17 points. North Union outscored Northwood Consett 45-25. A big second half sent the Warriors past the Vikings. North Union outscored Northwood Consett 27-14 over the final 16 minutes to pull away for the victory. Chloe Costello led the Vikings with 9 points and 6 steals. Morgan Wallen had 5 points, 10 rebounds, 3 assists, and 3 steals. In other college football news, Mississippi State football coach Mike Leach dies at age 61. An article by Ralph D. Russo of the Associated Press. Gruff, pioneering, and unfiltered, Mississippi State's Mike Leach was one of the most influential foot football coaches of any of this or any generation. His boundless curiosity and fascination for people, places, and things made him famous beyond the field, a unique character in sports. Leach, who helped revolutionize football from high school to the NFL, 
with the air raid offense, died Monday night following complications from a heart condition, the school said Tuesday. He was 61. Leach fell ill Sunday at his home in Starkville, Mississippi, near the university. He was treated at a local hospital before being airlifted to University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson, about 120 miles away. Mike was a giving and attentive husband, father, and grandfather. He was able to participate in organ donation at UMMC as a final act of charity, the family said in a statement issued by Mississippi State. We are supported and uplifted by the outpouring of love and prayers from family, friends, Mississippi State University, the hospital staff, and football fans around the world. Thank you for sharing in the joy of our beloved husband and father's life. In 21 seasons as a head coach at Texas Tech, Washington State, and Mississippi State, Leach went 158 wins with 107 losses after taking an unusual path to the profession. Leach fought through a bout with pneumonia late in in this season, coughing uncontrollably at times during news conferences but seemed to be improving, according to those who worked with him. News of him falling gravely ill swept through the college football the past few days and left many who knew him stunned, hoping and praying for a recovery. It's hard to put into words the impact that Mike Leach had on the players he coached, the game of football, and me personally. TCU coach Sonny Dykes posted on Twitter, he was a unique personality an independent thinker and a great friend. No one had a greater influence on my life other than my father. In Starkville, under gray skies, the video board at Davis Wade Stadium showed an image of a smiling leech and the message in loving memory. Black ribbons were tied to the stadium gates and flowers were left there to honor the coach. Mike's keen intellect and unvarnished candor made him one of the nation's true coaching legends, Mississippi State President Mark Keenum said. His passing brings great sadness to our university and to the Southeastern Conference and to all who loved college football. I will miss Mike's profound curiosity, his honest and his wide-open approach to pursuing excellence in all things. At Martin Stadium in Pullman, Washington, A similar tribute was on the video board above a snow-covered field. Leach was known for his pass-happy offense, wide-ranging interests. He wrote a book about Native American leader Geronimo and had a passion for pirates and taught a class about insurgent warfare and rambling off-the-cuff news conferences. An interview with Leach was as likely to veer into politics, wedding planning, or hypothetical mascot fights as it was to stick to football. He considered Donald Trump a friend before the billionaire businessman ran for president and then campaigned for him in 2016. He traveled all over the world and most appreciated those who stepped aside of their expertise, stepped outside of their expertise. One of the things I admire about Michael Jordan, he got condemned a lot for playing baseball. I completely admired that, Leach said. He told the Associated Press last spring, I mean, you're going to be dead in a hundred years anyway. You've mastered basketball, and you're going to go try to master something else and stick your neck out 
and you're not afraid to do it. And know that a lot of people are going to be watching you while you do it. I thought it was awesome. Leach's teams were consistent winners at programs where success did not come easy. His quarterbacks put up massive passing statistics, running a relatively simple offense called the Air Raid that he did not invent, but certainly mastered. Six of the 20 best passing seasons in major college football history were by quarterbacks who played for Leach, including four of the top six. Calling plays from a folded piece of paper smaller than an index card, Leach termed passers such as B.J. Simmons and Graham Harrell, Connor Halliday, and Anthony Gordon into record setters and Heisman Trophy contenders. You have to make choices and limit what you're going to teach and what you're going to do. That's the hard part, Leach told the AP about Air Raid's economical playbook. Leach also had a penchant for butting heads with authority, and he wasn't shy about criticizing players he felt were not playing with enough toughness. A convergence of those traits cost Leach his first head coaching job. He went 84-43 and 43 with the Red Raiders, never having a losing season in the Big 12 school and reaching number two in the country in 2008 with a team that went 11-2 and matched a school record for victories. He was fired by Texas Tech in December 2009 after being accused of mistreating a player, Adam James, the son of former ESPN announcer and NFL player Craig James, who had suffered a concussion. He refused to apologize for the conflict and eventually sued Texas Tech for wrongful termination. The school was protected by state law, but Leach never stopped trying to fight that case. He also filed a lawsuit against ESPN and Craig James, and that was later dismissed. He was... While out of coaching for two seasons, Leach and his wife Sharon retreated to their home in Key West, Florida, where he rode his bike around town and knocked back drinks at the bars. He returned to coaching in the Pac-12, but never gave up that beloved home in the Keys. Leach landed at Washington State in 2012. After three losing seasons, the Cougars soon looked very much like his Texas Tech teams. In 2018, Washington State went 11-2, setting a school record for victories, and was ranked as high as number seven in the country. Leach moved to the SEC in 2020, taking over at Mississippi State. After years of questions about whether Leach's spread offense could be successful in the nation's most talented football conference, the Bulldogs set an SEC record for yards passing in his very first game against defending national champion Louisiana State University. Born March 9, 1961 in tiny Susanville, California, Leach grew up in even smaller Cody, Wyoming. Raised as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he attended BYU and got a law degree from Pepperdine. Leach didn't play college football, rugby was his sport, but watching the innovative passing attack used by then-BYU coach Lavelle Edwards at a time when most teams were still run-heavy piqued his interest in drawing up plays. In 1987, he broke into college coaching at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and spent a year coaching football in Finland, but it was at Iowa Wesleyan where he found his muse. In 
head coach Hal Mum had invented the air raid while coaching high school in Texas. At Iowa Wesleyan, with Leach as offensive coordinator, it began to take hold and fundamentally change the way football was played. Mum was also called, also recalled spending hours with Leach in the car, driving to see recruits and learn as much about offense as they could. The conversations ranged from the existence of aliens and Bigfoot to Civil War history and the best fast food burgers. I mean, we probably covered it all, Mum told AP. Leach followed Mum to Valdosta State and then to the SEC at Kentucky, smashing passing records along the way. He spent one season as Oklahoma's offensive coordinator in 1999 before getting his own program at Texas Tech. From there, the air raid spread like wild and became the predominant way offense was run in the Big 12 Conference and beyond. Leach's extensive coaching tree includes Dykes, USC's Lincoln Riley, Houston's Dana Holgerson, and Cliff Kingsbury of the Arizona Cardinals. Coach, you will certainly be missed, but your impact on so many will live on. Thankful for every moment. You changed my life and so many others, Riley posted on Twitter. This past season, Leach's Mississippi State, Mississippi State team finished 8-4, and four including a 24-22 victory Thanksgiving night over Mississippi in the intense rivalry known as the Egg Bowl. It was his final game. Leach is survived by his wife and four children, Janine, Kimberly, Cody, and Kirsten. And one final story regarding the World Cup semifinals. Mezzi, Argentina, cruise into the final. The star has hand in all goals in a 3-0 victory over Croatia. That should be 3-0 victory over Croatia. Lionel Messi is back in the World Cup final with Argentina on his mission to win soccer's biggest prize for the first time. And at 35, he could hardly be playing any better. Messi converted a penalty and had a hand in the other two goals by Julian Alvarez and leading Argentina or leading Argentina to a 3-0 victory over Croatia on Tuesday that set up a meeting with either France or Morocco in Sunday's title match. It will be Messi's second World Cup final. Argentina lost the other other one to Germany in 2014 in what might be his last appearance at the tournament. It could yet be the perfect way to go out for a player widely regarded as one of the game's best players, if not the best. A lot is going through my head. It's very emotional seeing all of this, Mizzi said in a post-match interview on the field as he looked up at Argentina's celebrating scarf-waving supporters. To see the fans the family, during the whole tournament was so incredible. We're going to the final, which is what we wanted. Messi is thrilling his legion of fans along the way with his swivel and driving run to set up the third goal for Alvarez in the 69th minute, epitomizing his confidence and swagger. He is embracing the responsibility of leading Argentina to its third World Cup title, scoring in five of his six games in Qatar. 
He even had a penalty saved in the game, which he didn't score. He even had a penalty saved in the game in which he didn't score. Croatia failed in its bid to reach a second straight World Cup final after conceding two goals in a five-minute span from the 34th, just when the team was looking comfortable at Luceo Stadium. Argentina coach Leonel Scaloni was in tears after the final whistle, even though the celebrations in general were much calmer than after previous games. Yet there was a moment, midway through the first half, that must have stuck fear, struck fear into all Argentines when Messi appeared to clutch his left hamstring and rub it. Was Argentina's superstar going to have a come-off? No such luck for Croatia. Messi was soon toying with his opponents in a way only he can and put Argentina ahead by lifting his penalty into the top corner after Alvarez was taken out by Dominic Levikovic after clipping the ball past Croatia's goalkeeper. Alvarez poked home his first goal at the end of a surging run from halfway, starting with Mezi's short pass. He went on in the th- he put in the third, following more outrageous skill from his teammate near the right corner that left Yasko Vardiol, one of the best defenders at the World Cup, grasping at thin air. It was one game too far for Croatia, which had beaten Japan and Brazil on penalties in the knockout stage, and star midfielder Luka Modric, who at 37 was, has likely played his final World Cup match. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 14, 2022. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.